Bluecliff Record, Case 43, Dongshan's Cold and Heat. Please sit comfortably. A monk asked Dongshan, when cold and heat visit us, how should we avoid them? Dongshan said, <clears throat> why not go where there is neither cold nor heat? The monk said, uh, where is there neither cold nor heat? Dongshan said, when it is cold, kill yourself with cold. When it is hot, kill yourself with heat. I mentioned the vessel of practice this morning. You know that the vessel of practice uh, actually has no sides to it. more you go into it, more practice transforms into the fact itself, into the matter itself. Chao Cho uh, was asked by a high official, uh, how do you practice, Master? Chacho said, if I practiced it would be a disaster. Okay. This is not an argument for not practicing. <laughs> but if it's self-conscious practice, there is separation. Mm, I am practicing. What are you practicing? Oh, I am practicing uh, with the Khan, uh, who is hearing that sound. Um, you know, and so on. There's endless uh, dualism, you know, practice. But as practice deepens, there is a sense that it, it, it turns into the universe itself. The universe correspondingly is practicing uh, happily or unhappily on the mat. So uh, Dongshan Liangshu was ninth uh, century uh, Zen master during the flowering of Chan Buddhism during the Tang Dynasty in China. A great teacher among so many great teachers at that time. He and his successor, Sao Shan Benji, are revered as the founders of the Saodong lineage, uh, known in Japanese as Soto. Uh, so the name of the two mountains on which they taught, uh, Sao and Dong, became Saodong. You know, they were not founding a school. This is, um, it's, you know, it's a much later thing to see these as schools. Um, they just taught and successes appeared and after a while someone would notice the family style and uh, they started to call it a school. But, uh, yeah. I think it's quite unwitting, the matter of schools. Uh, however, the roots of our line, uh, the Diamond Sangha and the Sunbo Kyodan, which is the sect of the three treasures which precedes us coming down the Japanese uh, tradition, um, connect back through the Soto tradition, most largely, uh, back through Dogen, uh, back all the way uh, to Dongshan, and the, the Saodong lineage, which by the way is both a combination of Shikantata and Khans, which we inherit in 
uh, our tradition here um, uh, has a prehistory and uh, it goes back to uh, uh, they have a founding teacher before Dongshan and Saoshan it goes back to Shertao uh, 150 years earlier so I think the Saodong lineage is the only one that does that So for us, Dongshan is a founding teacher. While many of Dongshan's dialogues have come to, that come down to us are obscure, uh, they're written down 800 years after he died, so no wonder there is some obscurity. Uh, when I was working with Peter Wong on these texts, he said, well, perhaps the texts are corrupted, you know, who knows? Um, it's a bit like reading the poetry of Sappho, you know, where you've got tiny fragments and the dialogues are sometimes feel incomplete. Um, however, this one is not. This is uh, incredibly clear and straight, uh, yeah, straightforward. It's like every Yunmen's koan, every day is a good day. Uh, it's a koan for us in each and every day of our lives. So the monk asked Dung Shan, when cold and heat visit us, how should we avoid them? Dongshan said, why not go where there is neither cold nor heat? Uh, Dongshan's monastery was situated uh, near Nanchang in northern uh, Jiangxi province. Conditions would have been tough there, especially in the summer months, where 40 degrees centigrade isn't unusual and the humidity can be high. <coughs> it's also below freezing for stretches in winter too. Occupational health and safety for monks would have had a field day there. The monk asks about avoiding cold and heat and probably imagining spring in some fortunate location in a monastery without extremes. We can understand this. Uh, where is that place? He asks eagerly. Uh, he makes it sound as if that place was remote. Can I really go there? Dongshan comes back with, when it is hot, let the heat kill you. When it is cold, let the cold kill you. Uh, a kill here is like, take everything away. Well, kill is also what it says. Um, with the bell sounds of the dojo, so, what's the saying? They, they toll the funeral knell of the small self. Uh, heat can also toll that funeral bells. So can cold. I was hoping for an extreme weather event today, but it didn't quite arrive. But it's kind of hotish, so it's good. <laughs> Nothing like having a cord, you know, with, with Tasha. So, you know, what is this about? Um, when it is hot, let the heat kill you. When it is cold, let the cold kill you. You know, it, Zen isn't masochism. Uh, don't cultivate feeling cold. Uh, when you're cold, pull on a pullover. Uh, when you're hot, turn on the fan. Uh, uh, but it's good to stop tinkering with conditions in your mind about heat. And, uh, let go grumbling. Let go of bothering the heat. Allow it to be heat through and through.
This crown is important. Heat and cold is very straightforward here, and so characteristic of Zen. Um, produce, it presents something which is vividly clear. We all know it. Uh, it's intimate to our experience, and it's straightforward. It's not unduly psychological. But the, the extent of this Khan is much wider than heat and cold. Uh, it also includes grief. It also includes what is irredeemably difficult in our lives and still seems to be there in spite of the years of practice. Uh, it includes the demons uh, that are still there in our lives after years of practice. Yeah, uh, anger, which can be readily rekindled, uh, even though we don't react so much uh, as we used to, but still it is there. Um, also heartbreak. Uh, yeah, also long-term disappointment. Uh, career, love, the things that hang around. Also fears, uh, fears for the future years about what will happen uh, to the planet uh, with climate change. So the practice is deeply about allowing, uh, allowing what is there to be there without uh, running off, uh, without trying to push it away. Yeah, allow, allow, allow. That is the path of ripening. If you try to create a pure condition, which is immensely tempting because we encounter those states all the, well, not all of the time, but occasionally we get a taste of that peace. So there's a natural temptation to try and push stuff off, you know, like, and I want to cultivate this really nice place where I am. It feels really, really deep. John Tarrant used, uh, used to say that uh, you get into that very, very deep place, it's very peaceful, and then you put out your hands, and there are the walls. So whatever is there is allowed uh, to be. You know, the monk's question about cold and heat uh, is entirely reasonable. Uh, we all wish to avoid pain and discomfort, and instinctively we do avoid them. Uh, our sense of self-preservation is hardwired in. Uh, you know, you touch a hot stove and you learn very quickly that you do not touch a hot stove. Um, we learn this very quick uh, if we're not going to get seriously hurt. Children are learning. We are all attached to life and we take pains to protect ourselves from whatever threatens, threatens us. And uh, that is all right. This is not what is being talked about here so much. So this is not about taking stupid risk.
the Dung Shan says to the monk, um, well, why not go where there's neither cold nor heat? Yeah, um, why not uh, pass through that dichotomy and experience what uh, is boundless and vast? Cold and heat are empty of an unchanging essence or self, if you will. <coughs> this is quite unconventional when we think about heat and cold. Um, but it gets teeth when we apply it to sentient beings, especially ourselves. The traditional Mahayana view as conveyed in the Heart Sutra is that we take the five skandhas, uh, form, sensation, perception, mental reaction and consciousness uh, and form the notion of a self out of those, out of the five skandhas. We conjure up a permanent indwelling self for ourselves. The best way I know how to indicate this is that sense with when Descartes says, um, I think therefore, or wrote as a springboard for his philosophy, I think therefore I am. So if there are thoughts, there must be someone to think them. So the rumour goes around. There's no smoke without fire. Uh, if uh, there is thinking, there must be someone to think the thoughts. But what about if it is just the thoughts? A rising energy, who doesn't know that? What if there is no permanent indwelling self? But uh, having conjured it and having it supported at every turn by society, because it's a totally reinforcing situation, um, we spent a lifetime defending our creation. Uh, I say this all the time, I'm going to say it again because it feels important. Yasutani. Uh, Roshi used to say, the fundamental delusion of humanity is that I am in here and you are out there. What about the reverse, eh? <laughs> what about if you are in here and I am out there? It's good to be a little playful with this. These uh, admired notions. as the Heart Sutra, which is, by the way, the pur purest presentation of the Khan Mu. It's the greatest uh, Taisho uh, that imaginable on the Khan Mu. It's the perfect and purest presentation of Mu itself. Even at the end of it, it says, um, this mantra, uh, which refers to the whole uh, sutra, what are the words, Jared? I, they just escapes you in a moment. This mantra? The great Indian mantra, the unsurpassed mantra, the supreme mantra, which completely removes all anguish. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Those very words, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, practicing deep Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty. 
You know, it has meaning, it has no meaning, it's beyond meaning, it's beyond no meaning. Uh, it's the very matter itself. Uh, rather politely called a mantra at the end uh, as a way of embracing the whole thing. It means you can keep repeating it, which is maybe a good thing. It's repeated lots and lots and lots throughout at least 50 times a year and includes those enclaves, you're probably up getting around 60 times a year. Form is exactly emptiness, emptiness is exactly form. Sensation, or as Mary put it, more accurately translated as feeling, when she did a Taisho on this in Sashin. Perception, mental reaction, consciousness are like this. Uh, all of these are empty. What is it to say that they are empty? <laughs> this is very difficult to put into words. <laughs> Everything comes along, completely transparent. Sensation, uh, completely open at the edges. Uh, blue sky, candlelight, people in the dojo, the floor. Perception, blue sky, candlelight, people in the dojo, the floor. Like this in each uh, instance. There's a wonderful little story uh, of Dongshan when he was a child. He asked his tutor, it says in the Heart Sutra, uh, no nose, but I have a nose. What about that? His tutor was unable to respond. Who knows that this exchange, the kind of nose and no nose, uh, might have set this very, very bright child uh, on his path. Uh, he carried the Khan, do non-sentient beings teach the Dharma? Uh, as a, in his 20s and late teens, he was obsessed with this Khan, took it from teacher to teacher. And I can't remember, it was Gui Shan, I think, who said to him, yeah, bricks and tile rub rubble are radiantly expounding the Dharma. The floor expounds it. The light expounds it. Sunset expounds it. Traffic expounds it most beautifully. sometimes expressed in terms of the middle way. I am because you are. You are because of floor, candlelight, Alastair, Kathy, Andrea, Ross. In the Mahayana, the imagery of darkness is used to suggest emptiness, while that of light is used to suggest form, differentiation, contingency, or bright uniqueness. Uh, Dongshan, in his poem, The Song of the Precious Mirror, Samadhi, writes, he's referring to the Dharma of justice. No need to unpack that, is there? <laughs> the Dharma of justice. This here now. This 
the Dharma of just this, he says, is writes is fully illuminated at midnight and hidden at daybreak. Your true nature is uh, just that radiant darkness of midnight. It's the radiant darkness of midnight. In terms of uh, daybreak, the matter is completely hidden. There you are, getting out of bed, going to the toilet, uh, sitting zazen, first coffee for the day, eating breakfast, getting ready for work. And the vastness is completely hidden, is completely concealed in just those actions. Actually, it finds its expression as those. What is vast and boundless has no expression except through making coffee, uh, except through sitting sazen in the early morning, uh, except through putting on clothes, except through walking to the car and opening the door. Uh, only expression possible for that matter. So he says, the Dharma of just this is fully illuminated at midnight and hidden at daybreak. It's an exemplar for all beings used to liberate them from suffering. So this is not just poetry or idle metaphysics at all. Uh, it's about liberation. It's about liberation from suffering. Uh, to be liberated from suffering doesn't mean that you are free of physical and emotional pain. Rather it means that your suffering is carried differently if we can speak of it being carried at all. Just that disappointment, just that heartache, Liberation arises when we let go of holding on to the delusory entity that we call the self and when we let go of grasping it, of clinging to it. When we let go, when it lets go, we experience intimacy with the whole and it with us. And we are dunked in this over and over again when we practice. You know, the more we practice, the more this happens, the more insensibly it happens. It's not something willed or wished and then accomplished. You just do it and the changes look after themselves. And still we struggle with difficulty and that's all right. This is not some kind of perfect uh, solution. Um, actually, which would be quite terrifying, I'm sure. Um, it certainly would be the death of decent parties. <laughs> Liberation is not about killing off the imagined self or the ego either. We can't get rid of, let alone destroy the ego. However, when we let go of grasping, when the grasping lets go, we forget the self in the act of uniting with the matter at hand. Or when we listen ourselves away as we attend to a friend or partner telling their troubles. Or like Samantabhadra, the great action bodhisattva, uh, taking action to combat injustice. This is an archetype which has been rarely raised in, well, in my teaching, so I've, 
this is kind of new, but Samantha Bhadra, uh, great action bodhisattva. Um, I want to tell a little story of Fanny Balbuck, a Noongar woman who uh, lived from 1840 to 1907. And uh, she was a prominent, uh, actually Wajuk woman, and she was born at Matagara. Harrison Island, um, and the place of Matagarak means <coughs> the brackish place of the turtle. It's beautiful. Her country included the swamps and wetlands in the area currently occupied by Perth Railway Station and the Perth Cultural Centre. She would gather jilgies and vegetables from the swampy areas around Perth. She was a descendant of Yalagonga and her traditional country covers the Perth CBD area. Fanny Bulbuck is remembered for her fierce and unwavering commitment to her land rights in the earliest days of the frontier wars and her reactions to the buildings, fences and homes which quickly replaced her country in the Swan, as the Swan River colony expanded at the cost of Noongar people's lands, language and lives. Houses were being built on her lands, on her hunting grounds, on her traditional women's grounds. Bulbuk would walk the track between her birth site and the railway station, regardless of any new obstacles, buildings or fences that had sprung up in her path. If she went away anywhere and she came back and there was a fence, she would just walk through it, kick it down, kick the door open and walk through the house. Wonderful. Daisy Bates herself wrote, Fanny Bulbuck would stand at the gates of Government House reviling all who dwelt within because the stone gates guarded by a century enclosed her grandmother's burial ground. Noongar elder Noel Nanup says, that was her song line, her dreaming. She just kept going and didn't take any notice of the new city growing up. That's a story of defiance and determination. Inevitably, this column tends to settle on uh, the personal, but I want to open it up uh, with some words, finally, with some words from David Lloyd. They're talking of the Bodhisattva and Samantabhadra and Great Action Bodhisattva. He writes... What is the most important contribution of the Bodhisattva in these difficult times when we often feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the challenge and are tempted to despair? The Bodhisattva's response, what is that? To quote the US, he quotes the US Army Corps of Engineers. <coughs> the difficult we do immediately, the impossible will take a little longer. According to the classical formulation, the Bodhisattva takes a vow to liberate all living beings. Someone who has volunteered for such an unachievable task is not going to be intimidated by present crises, no matter how hopeless they may appear. That is because the Bodhisattva practices on both levels, inner and outer, which enables her to engage in goal-directed behaviour without attachment to results. As T.S. Eliot puts it, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. The Bodhisattva's job is to do the best he or she can without knowing what the consequences will be. 
Have we already passed ecological tipping points and human civilization is doomed? We don't know. Yet rather than being intimidated, the Bodhisattva embraces don't know mind. Because Buddhist practice opens us up to the awesome mystery of an impermanent world where everything is changing, whether or not we notice it. If we don't really know what's happening, how do we really know what's possible until we try? So let uh, indecision, let fear, let heartache, let disappointment, let this, let this take everything away. When everything is taken away, who are uh,